Well, with uh, Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday, it's been a couple weeks since we uh, were been in our five-verse study through the book of Matthew. And so today we will pick up where we last left off at the beginning of this month, in the beginning of April, in Matthew chapter 16. And so if you have your Bible with you this morning, I, I want to encourage you to start making your way to the book of Matthew chapter 16. You'll recall, hopefully if you were with us, you'll remember that we last left off covering verses 13 through 20. And so today we're going to cover verses 21 through 28 to the uh, end of the chapter. Really verse 28, we're really not going to pay a whole lot of attention to because we're going to pick it up next time when we get into chapter 17 as well. So uh, just kind of keep that in mind. And so we're going to read this morning's portion and uh, I want to invite you, please stand as we read... Uh, the Word of God, you know, Old Testament, uh, Ezra, they read from the scroll, and when they did so, they had everyone stand just in honor of the Lord. So we do that here, and I know you guys maybe think that's a little bit weird. So it's a, it's some, it's a biblical practice, but it's also practical as well. It gives you one last time to shake your legs out uh, before we sit and, and spend some time in the Word. So let's read Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 28. It begins... From that time, excuse me. <clears throat> from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, "Far be it from you, Lord! This shall not happen to you." But he turned and said to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Jesus continued, verse 24, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Is his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man? If he gains the whole world and loses his own soul, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, then he will reward each according to his works. And verse 28, it concludes, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for uh, this morning, just the opportunity to gather together as a body in Christ to sing your praises, to uh, be thankful and, and mindful of your many blessings in our life. And Father, as we look to just spend time in your word, we pray that you would lead and guide this time. Father, we pray that you would bring illumination to your word and to our hearts, Lord, that we might know uh, not just what was meant during the, the time that these words were said and, and spoken, but we would know that there's a truth and an application for us today as well. And so, Father, I pray that you tune our hearts to your spirit and that we would uh, sense his leading and guiding through your word and that you would reveal to us a little bit more of who you are and what you have for us. We look forward to hearing from you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. <clears throat> this morning, there's going to be, we're going to look at three different revelations uh, that things that Jesus revealed to his disciples and the people that he was ministering to. And in verses 21 through 23, we see really the, the revelation of Jesus's mission as the Messiah. Okay, uh, it's not something the first time he's made mention of some of the things that he would be coming his way, uh, but it is something that uh, he makes very bold here in these opening verses. Verse 21, it opens up with the phrase, from that time. And so we, just to be good Bible students, to understand what's going on, we, we want to ask, from what time? Uh, and so we realize that from the time of the events that occurred through verses 13 and 20. And so in order to get a better idea of the context and to bring to remembrance those events, uh, I thought I, it would be good just to uh, give us a brief, quick summary uh, of what just transpired and uh, to let us, um, and what has led us to where we began today in verse 21. And so uh, when we were last in our study of Matthew, uh, like I said, I think it was three weeks ago, uh, we looked at verses 13 through 20. We looked at them in great detail, but today I'll just note the major points of what happened in verses 13 through 20. We recall that Jesus, he had asked the disciples who the people were saying Jesus was. And then he asked the disciples themselves, whom they said who Jesus, whom Jesus was. And the disciples, they informed Jesus that some of the people thought that he was perhaps John the Baptist. Uh, others said Elijah, and, and some said uh, Jeremiah, and still others said, well, he's just one of the other prophets. Uh, and then Peter, answering for the disciples, he identified Jesus as the Christ the Son of the living God. And it was at that moment that Jesus then acknowledged that Peter was blessed because the Father had revealed this truth to him. It wasn't something that he, he had come to his own, his own intellect, and, but it was something that the Father gave to him, a divine revelation given to Peter that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah uh, that was to come. Jesus then declared that he would build his church on this rock. Okay? And we identified that rock as being the fact that Jesus was the Christ. He's the chief cornerstone. He is uh, the foundation of our faith in which we build upon. And we did highlight that it was specifically not Peter. Uh, there are some uh, would, that would proclaim and, and have us to believe that the rock that they're building upon was Peter. And so we would say, that's not really what was going on here as we looked at some of the uh, original Greek language and how Peter meant stone, small stone you could throw, but he talked about the rock that it was going to be built on was this foundational rock, this bedrock, and how it was the foundation of Jesus being the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus... He then gave to Peter a great honor okay, uh, as a steward of this wonderful truth, this rock. And he said, I'm going to give to you the keys. And, and, and you're going to be able to open these doors, basically. And we talked about how they represented doors of faith. And how Peter was able to both open the doors of faith to both the Jews and the Gentiles. Both of which we can read of, of how that came to be in the book of Acts. Okay? If we read uh, in Acts chapter 2, it was Peter 
who shared this glorious message with the Jewish uh, people, and they received it. The day of Pentecost, it was a glorious day. And then later on, Peter, again, he had the opportunity to open that door of faith to the Gentiles through, the, a, man named, uh, through a man named Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. And so he was given this great responsibility, this stewardship of this rock, this foundational truth of Christ, Jesus being the Christ. And so from the time of this great proclamation that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah that was to come, Jesus then began to show his disciples what the ministry and really specifically the mission of the Messiah would be. And so that's where we pick up. You'll recall that the Jews, they had a skewed view upon the mission of the Messiah. Most believed that the Messiah was going to come and set up an earthly kingdom. And he would reign as king over said kingdom. That he would come not only as a king, but also as a deliverer. And he would set the people free from the oppression of Rome. That was the mindset and the belief of many of the people in that day. That was, the Messiah was going to come. He's going to be that king. He's going to set us free. And so Jesus, he wanted the record straight. Okay? And he identified for his disciples the mission that was before him as the Christ. Four things are mentioned here as part of his mission. One was that he would go to Jerusalem. Okay? The second was that he would suffer at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. Third, that he would be killed. And fourth and finally, he said that he would be raised on the third day. This mission is what we've been looking at the last few weeks. It's kind of interesting. It's just everything kind of ties together. And I love how the Lord does that. Even though we're all over the place and doing different things, that uniform message that I believe the Lord's just encouraging us through uh, the Word of God. And so we've been looking at the last couple weeks. We, we looked at His entrance into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday just two weeks ago, the, the great emotion that filled that day. We saw the attacks upon him by the religious leaders of the Sanhedrin, which we noted was made up of elders, chief priests, and scribes, the same people that he's telling that he's going to suffer from. Okay? Uh, culminating in his trial and sentencing by Pontius Pilate on Good Friday, we gathered together and we remembered and looked at the crucifixion, how his death upon the cross uh, was part of his mission, and that he did it willingly for us. And last week on Sunday, we celebrated that completed mission when he rose from the grave on the third day. So here we are in Matthew chapter 16, just kind of going through our study, and it just correlates to what we've been talking about the last couple weeks, and in and, and his mission as the Messiah, to come into Jerusalem, to suffer, to be killed, and to rise on the third day. Peter, upon hearing the details of Jesus' mission as the Messiah, he pulled the Lord aside, and verse 22 tells us that he rebuked Jesus. Sometimes when I read Peter, you know, he just makes me laugh sometimes. You know, I read Peter, and you just have to kind of chuckle sometimes at what he does. Um, he's very impulsive, uh, and sometimes that worked out well for him. You know, he, he, was, 
he saw the Lord on the water, and he, Lord, tell me to come out to him, and he, he walked out on the water. He didn't really think about anything, and I mean, yeah, we know he, he ended up sinking when he started to think about it uh, and look around, but, but that impulsiveness, you know, it, it worked out for him on that. I mean, who else can say that they've, they've walked on water, right? Um, but, but oftentimes that impulsive attitude and that uh, impulsive behavior, uh, it didn't always work for him. And here is a time that it's so good for Peter, okay? To rebuke someone means to give someone a, a verbal expression of, of blame. It carries with it the idea of correction and reproof that they're in the wrong and you need to set them straight. It is a sharp criticism criticism of someone's behavior or actions. And so here Peter is rebuking the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father, interestingly, last time we got together in Matthew 16, we saw how the Father had just revealed a powerful and wonderful truth to Peter as he declared Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, that, the Messiah. And now Peter, he's trying to deny Christ the mission of the Messiah. And so on one moment he's declaring him to be the Christ, the Messiah, and then the next moment he's saying, no, you're not going to do the work of the Messiah. You're not going to do that. Peter was, was all too happy to proclaim Jesus as the Christ when he thought it meant that he was going to be coming as that conquering king and that everything was going to be great and he's going to be there. And, and we, all, we see throughout the gospel accounts that oftentimes they'd be kind of fighting about themselves and jockeying for position and who's going to be on the right hand and who's going to be on the left when he enters into his kingdom because they had this grand scheme and thought of, of what it would be like when... He came in and entered into his kingdom, thinking of an earthly kingdom. And so Peter was happy when Jesus, you know, to proclaim him as the Christ. But when he started talking about suffering and dying, Peter was like, wait a second. (laughs) Uh, He was going to, Peter, basically, you know, as I look at it, a a paraphrase of my own, he's like, you know, hold up a minute. Jesus, come here. I I, got to talk to you, (laughs) you know. And, and uh, that stuff that you're talking about there, that, you know, suffering and, and dying stuff, that's not going to happen. And, and, and it's interesting to me, I, 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 like I said, he, he makes me laugh at times. As I look at Peter, I look at this situation, I do find a bit of comfort for myself. Um, you know, Peter just was, was blessed with divine revelation and boldly proclaimed Jesus as the Christ, and then the next time we see him speak, he's rebuking Jesus. And you might find that interesting that I find comfort in that, so I will explain. You know, I find comfort in that because I know the Lord is going to still use Peter. Even after this goof, and even after a few more goofs that are going to come along the way in the life of Peter, God still used Peter. And it's comforting because I know that I make similar mistakes. One minute, the Lord may reveal to me a a glorious truth, and I have an opportunity to maybe share that with someone. And and the next time, you know, I I may say something foolish and and make a mess of things. And it's comforting to know that the Lord is gracious. And even though I I may make a mess of things from still going to use me, and I, I think the same should be applied to all of us, that we'd all be comforted by that fact. 
We should be comforted knowing that God doesn't use us because we're perfect. He doesn't use us because we've, we've never blown it or we've never made a mess of things. Okay? He uses us even though we're flawed. Okay? Even though we make mistakes. And so Peter, as we look at his life right now, we look at this situation, we kind of pull back a little bit from it, we think, man, if, Peter, what are you doing, you, you big knucklehead? You, you know, you're rebuking Jesus. Uh, I, I, think, I think as I look at that, that Peter is proof that God can use imperfect vessels like you and me to accomplish his perfect plan. And I think that's comforting. And so when we look at this, we can easily look at Peter and say, man, you blew it again, Peter. You're, you, you put your foot in your mouth uh, again. And, and you know, I, I do that sometimes too. And I know you guys probably do it, not as much as me, but I'm, I'm sure you guys do it as well. And, and we could be comforted knowing that, you know what? God can still use us. Even when we blow it and even when we make mistakes, God can still use us. Peter is proof of that. Well, let's see how Jesus responded to this rebuke from Peter. Verse 23, it tells us that Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Those are some pretty strong words. Um, You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Very sternly, Jesus returned Peter's rebuke upon him and had some heavy things to say about Peter and his actions. First, Jesus told Peter to get behind him and identified Peter with Satan. Okay, I, I know some people have looked at this and thought that maybe Peter was, you know, possessed somehow and Jesus tried to identify that. You know, he was, uh, Satan was, you know, but that's just goofy. Okay, that's not what's going on here. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Okay, I do not believe that Jesus was was stating that Peter was somehow possessed by Satan in that moment, okay? that he believed Peter to be Satan. He didn't believe Peter to be Satan. But rather, Peter's words, okay, they were in the same manner, in the same form of that of Satan when Jesus had previously encountered the devil during his days in the wilderness. Okay? Back in Luke chapter 4, we read of when Jesus was tempted by the devil for 40 days. And at the end of those days in the wilderness, one of the things that the devil tempted Jesus with was all the kingdoms of the world. The devil, he, he took Jesus up upon a high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Okay? Past, present, it was kind of like a, 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 a timeline of, of the world. And he says, I'll give it all to you. Give it all to you. You can rule over this world, over every kingdom here. The authority, it's been given to me. And, and he, you know, because of the sin, he, he does rule uh, on earth. Uh, and so we see that he had that authority. He was saying, I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. Give it all to you. You just need to bow down and worship before me. And it'll all be given to you. What Satan was offering was the opportunity to rule over this world without having to go to the cross. He presented him the opportunity to be king without having to go through the pain and the shame of the cross. That's what was being offered there. You can, you can rule over it all. 
You don't have, even have to go to the cross. And, and so Jesus responded to the devil in his temptation back in Luke chapter 4, verse 8. He said, Get behind me, Satan! For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. Jesus, He used that same phrase when addressing Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Because Peter was doing the same thing as Satan. He was telling Jesus that you don't have to go to the cross. You're not going to have to suffer and die. That's not going to happen. And so Peter, his words, they were lining up with the words of Satan where he said, I'll give it all to you. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to go through the suffering and the shame. You just worship me right here and it'll all be given to you. And so Jesus, he used that same phrase because Jesus identified Peter's words and, and the implication of his words, of denying him the mission of as the Messiah. He, he identified that with the same thing Satan was trying to offer. And so it, it's not, Peter was not possessed by Satan or any, if anybody tries to tell you something like that, they're wrong. But the words, the implication of his words, that he would not have to go through and complete the mission as the Messiah. That is what Jesus is identifying Peter with Satan for. Second, Jesus told Peter that he was an offense to him. This too, it's it's an interesting statement because the word offense, if you look at it, usually your Bible has little uh, superscript or subnotes and things like that or center column reference. And if you look it up, uh, it'll say that that word offense, that it literally means a stumbling block. And I find that interesting because we have here Peter, the rock. Remember, Peter's the rock, and and now uh, he's declared to be a stumbling block. You know, a stumbling block uh, can be anything that causes a person to fall or to fail to meet an objective. And so Peter, this rock, he was a stumbling block because he spoke out against Jesus' mission as the Messiah and he tried to, deny, tried to deny Jesus the cross. And in so doing, deny an opportunity for Jesus to complete his mission. Third, Jesus announced that Peter was not thinking about things of the Lord, but was occupied with the things of men. That word mindful that's used there when it says you're not mindful, things of the, uh, uh, you are mindful of the things, you're not mindful of the things of the Lord, but of the things of men, that word mindful, it means uh, to be devoted to. And, and so the implication are they, is that Jesus was saying, you're not devoted to the things of God, okay, but the things of men. You're, you're devoted to man's ways of thinking when it came to the mission of the Messiah. And what was man's way of thinking when it came to the mission of the Messiah? Again, that, that he, he was going to be this conquering king. And that he was going to come and, and rescue them all uh, from the oppression of Rome. And so Peter had his own idea of what it would be like to be there when, when Jesus uh, took his place as the Messiah. And, and frankly, it didn't match up with what P- Jesus was saying he was going to do. And Peter was too concerned with his own plans and his own thinking that he completely missed out upon what God's plan was and what God had in store. You know, as we consider Jesus' response to Peter, I I think it serves as a good reminder for us and and as well as a warning for us. You see, we too can sometimes have our own thoughts about how we think things ought to go, 
or how we think things ought to be and how things ought to work out in our life. And sometimes when things don't necessarily go the way that we think they ought to, uh, we can get upset. We can start to, to buck against certain situations and we get upset or, or frustrated or uh, we start to fight against those things that are happening. You know, we need to be careful that we don't find ourselves fighting against the Lord and His plan for our lives. We can't get caught up so much in our own thoughts and our own plans that we miss out on what God is wanting to do in and through us in that season and in that moment. And we can find ourselves in a situation like Peter where we've devoted ourselves to the things of men and not of the Lord. Or like Paul, whom the Lord declared was kicking against the goads as the Lord was trying to get a hold of his life. as He was persecuting the church and I was there on that road to Damascus that the Lord appeared to him. And he said to him, is it hard for you to kick against the goads? You know, this, you're, you're fighting against me. I'm leading you and I'm directing you. I'm trying to get your attention and you're fighting against it. You're kicking against it. And that's what kicking against the goads is. The goad is, a, is a, like a, a, a poker. Prod? Prod? Prod. I think that's the right word. I didn't write it down in my notes. Like a, a poker, right? Uh, an animal that would be tilling the land or whatever. You want to make them go straight lines. You have this prod that you would use to poke them and direct them into the right direction. Okay? And it would be pointed. It would, it would hurt a little bit. Sometimes the animals would kick against it. And it would end up causing worse injury to the animal uh, and cause own, more pain. And, and so that's what the implication there was. Paul, he was fighting against the Lord. He was kicking against the goads. And, and you know, we can do that sometimes. We could be fighting against the Lord because we feel like this is the way it ought to be, Lord. Okay? This is, didn't you see my plan? You know, I got a five-step plan here and how it's all going to work out. And, you know, I even submitted it to you in prayer. You know, I thought for sure you got the, the email or whatever it may be. And yet sometimes we will we'll fight against that. When things don't line up the way we think we do, they should. We need to seek the Lord. We need to make sure that our plans aren't getting in the way of His plans for us. Verses 24 through 26, we'll look at this next revelation, this revelation of the cost of discipleship that He had for the disciples here. Verses 24 through 26, I'll read it again. He says, Then Jesus said to His disciples, If anyone desires to come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? After telling the disciples about the path that he was headed towards, Jesus instructed them saying, If anyone desires to come after me, you know, if you think about that, you know, Jesus just got finished saying, I'm going to suffer many things and I'm going to be killed. And now he follows that up with, if anyone desires to come after me, and one might wonder about Jesus' approach here. Okay, and we might think, maybe that's not the greatest sales pitch, Lord, you know, to say you're going to be suffering and you're going to be killed and then say, if anybody wants to come after me and follow me, you know, maybe you, you should try and lighten it up a little bit or, or maybe insert some other things in there. But I like that. I like what he does here, okay? Because 
we have to realize that Jesus wasn't looking for weary, uncommitted followers. He often challenged people. Many who claimed that they wanted to follow him, and he challenged them to go all out or, or to go home. When Jesus approached Andrew and Peter as they were casting their nets into the sea, he declared to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And what do they do? They, they immediately dropped their nets and, and followed him. The same happened with James and John as Jesus called them. They, they left their father and their boat and, and followed Jesus. You know, these men, they were fishermen. Fishing was their livelihood. It's what they did to support themselves. And they just up and left it to follow Jesus. That's a, a bold commitment. Another man Jesus spoke with was also given an opportunity to follow him. In Matthew chapter 19, we read of a, a rich young ruler that Jesus told to sell off his goods and to come follow him. The rich young ruler, though, didn't respond in the same way that Peter and Andrew did, in the same way that James and John did. Matthew 19, verse 22, it tells us, When the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus called people to come follow him and and to leave the rest of the world behind. He was looking for bold commitments to follow him. And I think that he's still looking for the same today. He's looking, I believe, for people that will be willing to surrender all to him and follow him no matter what the cost. There is a cost to discipleship. You know, it's been said, and I agree with this statement, that all disciples are believers, but not all believers are disciples. There are those out there that are, that are not willing to answer the call to discipleship. And because of that, they miss out on wonderful opportunities to be used by God in awesome ways. Jesus said, if you want to come after me, you'll have to do three things. He said, you'll have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Now remember, this is not the cost of salvation. The cost of salvation has been paid for you. Christ paid it all. But there is a cost that comes with discipleship of growing in the Lord, maturing in the Lord, and saying, Lord, I I not only want to be saved, but I want to be used by you to impact your kingdom. And there's a cost to that. The first must deny ourselves. The word deny, according to my Strong's lexicon, it means to forget oneself, to lose sight of oneself and one's own interest. The idea of denying yourself is not like I deny myself, you know, candy for Lent or sugar for Lent or I deny myself these these pleasures of life. That's not what it's talking about. Discipleship is not about denying yourself worldly things. It's about denying self. Okay? Not just denying yourself other things. It's denying self. The idea there is that we're willing to to let go of our own dreams, our own desires, our own ambitions, and completely surrender 
your entire self to the Lord. It's putting others first. It's putting the Lord first. It's putting others after that and putting yourself last. It's not an easy thing to do. And it's a a high price to pay for the cost of discipleship, to deny yourself. He said that we must take up our cross. You know, the cross nowadays uh, is seen as a very fashionable uh, piece of, uh, of art, you know, or jewelry, uh, with tattoos and all types of things. And, the, and the, the cross is very glamorized today. But if you think about what the cross is, okay, it was a sign of torture and, and ultimately one uh, of death. It, it, it's more of maybe someone you think of maybe that dresses up in goth and is very... Fo- that would be, you know, if you walked around with crosses around your neck 2,000 years ago, people would think you're a little bit weird. Okay. Obviously, here the Lord is speaking. I believe, you know, metaphorically. Okay, we're not to crucify uh, ourselves literally. Although there are people that think that they should do that, and they do that. And around Easter, even these last couple weeks, people crucify themselves and they walk on these long journeys to try and show this great sacrifice that they do for the Lord. But uh, that's not what it's talking about here. Okay. He's speaking metaphorically. He's not saying that we have to actually die to be a disciple and we have to be crucified. Okay? In Luke's gospel account, he tells us that we're to, to take up our cross daily. And so we know that he can't be speaking of, of actually dying. Right? We don't die and then do it again the next day. Right? We just die once. So, The idea here, it represents a daily dying to our own sinful passions. Okay? Our sin, that's what the cross it should remind us of. It's our sin. Because it was upon the cross of Calvary that Jesus paid for our sins. And so the idea here is that uh, denying and dying to our sinful passions and desires. It means to daily reckon the old man dead. It means to submit your life to the Lord as a living sacrifice. That's what Romans 12.1 tells us. That we're to submit our lives unto the Lord as a living sacrifice. It tells us that it is our reasonable act of service to the Lord. And so in response to what He's done to us, this is the, a reasonable expect, expectation that we would live our lives as a living sacrifice. Thirdly, He said we must follow Him. Where He leads, we must be willing to follow it means that we will trust the Lord with the direction of our life. I have, to commit, I have to admit to you that this is something that I've struggled with in times past. Because sometimes you can see the writing on the wall and you, you see, and I was very content and happy in, in Okinawa and, and just kind of being the behind-the-scenes guy. And it was great to be used by the Lord, but I ultimately was not the... You know, senior pastor, so it was always, well, you know, the buck stops with you, buddy, not with me, you know, and I liked that, you know, I liked that a lot, and, and it was great, and then as the Lord was preparing and doing different things, and you start to see the writing on the wall, and you say, Lord, I, I, I could see where this might be going, and, and, and sometimes we have tendency to maybe want to, to, to bail ship, you know, to jump off and say, no, I don't want to go that way. But that's what it means to follow Him. That we trust that where He's going, 
is where He wants us to be. And so we follow Him. That we be confident that His plan is best and that walking in it is the only place that we would want to be. This can be a very difficult call to answer, the call to discipleship. And, and so Jesus, He helps to bring some perspective into uh, things here. Jesus explained the outcome for those who are not willing to surrender their life. Hey, if you're not willing to pay this cost, if you're not willing to, to surrender completely to the Lord, here's what's going to happen. He said, if you're not willing to surrender their life, you're going to lose your life to the Lord. He says, ultimately, you're going to end up losing what you're trying to hold on to so tightly that you don't want to surrender and give up to the Lord. You're going to end up losing it anyways. The end for, for all those that don't come to Christ you know, and, and for those that don't follow Him is they end up losing everything that they were unwilling to surrender in the first place. You know, As people strive to, to save what they do have, they will ultimately find that they're going to lose it. Jesus said, however, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You know, this is a, a very beautiful thing that the Lord does in the life of his followers. As we step out in faith to answer the call to discipleship, God does something miraculous. Because when we surrender our dreams and ambitions to the Lord, you know what happens? He replaces them with things that are so much better. You know, there's a, a phrase out there that's used, and I don't know who started it or who said it, but I really like it. I, it's something I, I try to be mindful of, and it's the, uh, the phrase goes this way. A good thing is not a good thing if it stands in the way of something better. Okay? And, and you may look at your life and what you got going on, and you may think to yourself, i got a good thing going on here. Life's good. I don't want to have to give up all, all, all in order to to follow the Lord and to, to make those sacrifices and that commitment. We said, man, life's good. Let me tell you, that good life you think you're living isn't better than a life that is fully surrendered to the Lord and His plan for your life. It doesn't matter how good your life is. If it isn't surrendered to following Jesus, I know that there's something better. And we can't let something that is good stand in the way of something that is better. You may think that the cost is too high, but as you commit to it, you realize that the, the rewards, they supremely outweigh the cost. Okay, we're really getting a good deal. Okay? You know, I, I can't recall ever meeting someone that answered the call to discipleship and found themselves right in the center of God's will for their life and that they, they felt that the cost was too high. I've never come across someone that's made that profession. Okay? That, that the commitment that they made wasn't worth it. That they wish they never did it. You know, famous missionary Jim Elliott, he wrote about this in his journal when he penned the famous words, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. We willingly give of our life knowing that we don't get to keep it anyways, Right? And we surrender that and we give it in exchange for a life that's surrendered to the Lord and, and it's something that we're never going to lose. It's that eternal relationship that we have with the Lord. And, and so He is no fool who gives what He cannot keep to gain that which He cannot lose. Jesus asks 
two pointed questions in regards to the value of a man's soul in verse 26. Jesus asked, what profit would there be if a man gains the whole world and loses his own soul? The word profit, it's an accounting term. If you're um, mathematics, right? Uh, It's used to identify gains that are made through trade. And so the idea here is if one were to gain the whole world and all the treasures and all the riches that are within it in exchange for, what is the traded item there? You get this and you trade your soul would there be any profit? The answer is no. There would be no profit. You would be on the, the losing end of that deal. If you gained the whole world and all the riches and all the treasures and all the things that we think of as, as that the world seeks after, if we exchange that for our soul, we would be on the losing end. There would be no profit. There is none. You know, the follow-up question, it seems to indicate a no answer, and then he proceeds to question, well, what? What, if anything, is worth exchanging for a man's soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? How much, how much value do you place on your soul? What's it worth to you? Because as we read the Scriptures, we find out what it was worth to God. Because God was willing to send His Son for you in the form of a babe to live a sinless life, to have Him sacrificed upon a cross for a a debt that was not His own, to pay a debt that was not His own, to pay a debt that was yours and mine. And that's how much He valued our soul. And so how much do we value our souls, ourselves? How much do we give it value? I think some are willing to exchange their soul for things that are are, are relatively so little. Maybe position or, or prominence, fame or fortune, uh, beauty, uh, popularity. You know, we can all sorts of things that we could seek after and, and say, I want to find my, uh, if I could just get this. If I seek after this, you know, and I get this, it's going to be great. And we're willing to surrender all to seek after those things. We've put way too much, way too less, not enough, value upon our soul. The answer to the question of what will a man give in exchange for his soul, it varies from person to person. Some people feel like it's, they give no value to it. So they'll offer it up for anything. But note this, there is nothing more valuable than a man's soul. Whatever you exchange for it, okay, you're getting a bad deal if it's anything other than a surrendered life to the Lord you're on the losing end. No amount of treasures, no amount of riches could ever equal the value of a man's soul. Verse 27 and 28, it says, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He will reward each according to His works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. The Lord mentioned his mission as the Messiah, how he'll, be, uh, how he'll die and rise again. And here he mentions another future aspect of his ministry as the Messiah. He reveals to them uh, the ministry uh, of what will happen at his second coming. Okay. It tells us that 
Uh, he will return in the glory of his Father and his, with his angels and reward each person according to their works. Okay? Jesus' first coming was when he came as a babe and lived a sinless life which he laid down upon the, cro- laid down upon the cross for us. Jesus' second coming is still yet to come. But when he does come, he tells us that one of the things that he will do was he will reward each according to his works. Let me remind you again that this reward is not salvation. Okay? Uh, we do not earn salvation based upon our works and what we do. Okay? Uh, it's something else. We can't say for sure exactly what these rewards will be. Other portions of Scripture speak about crowns that will be given in heaven. Uh, to believers for the things that they've done, and, and we're going to actually we're going to receive those crowns, and then we just turn around and we lay them down before the Lord, and so it's kind of like we give it, we get it, but then we give it right back, anyways. Uh, and so there's mention of different types of rewards. What these rewards exactly would be, we don't know for sure. Perhaps they're crowns, okay? But but the important thing to note here is that our works will be tested, okay? I, I want to. Turn with, I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 because it kind of explains uh, that process and what's going to happen and, and how he's going to judge those works. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, this will be the final portion that we look at this morning. I'm going to read verses 10 through 15 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, it says, According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Verse 14 says, If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And so we see here this... uh, it's not about salvation, you know, these, these works that are going to be tested. Okay, we're already, we're going to be saved. But, but the things that we do for the Lord, the works that we do for the Lord, they're going to be tested. These verses, they teach us that every day we live as Christians, that we are building upon a foundation. Okay, we talked about that foundation of Jesus Christ. And, and we build with either gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw. And what we build with will become very clear as it will be tested by fire. And if we built with gold, silver, and precious stones, then the fire will not consume those works. And we will receive a reward. If we built upon the foundation with wood, hay, and straw, and it's tested by fire, then those works will burn. We won't lose our salvation, okay? but we won't receive the rewards that those who, who built with gold, silver, and precious stones will receive. And so I want to encourage you okay, to build upon the foundation of Christ with the best materials possible. To those 
to build with those materials that will be able to withstand the fire so that we might receive the rewards. Not that we would you know, glory in our rewards, but we get to take them and we get to give them right back to the Lord in worship. And so I want to encourage you. Let's build upon the foundation. Let's give our all for Him, the gold, the silver, the precious stones, and not our, our second best, not our leftovers, not like, oh, I got some wood and the hay and straw here, and let me do whip something up for the Lord here. That we would really invest in our walk with the Lord and, and realize the cost of discipleship. We would build with precious stones those things that will last through the fire. The last verse of, of chapter 16 uh, in the book of Matthew, we're going to actually speak about that when we cover chapter 17 because I think it ties in. A lot of commentators and, and Bible teachers actually believe that maybe the chapter break should have been at the end of chapter, uh, for chapter 16, should have been at verse 27 and not verse 28, whether that's true or not. We'll read verse 28. We'll dive into that, but we'll do that next time. Okay? In our portion this morning, we saw Jesus make a number of different revelations. He revealed, although... Uh, not for the first time, uh, but in a very direct manner, the mission of the Messiah. We looked at verses 21 through 23. We noted a few things. How we can find comfort in Peter's short that that God still used Peter, even though he made a number of mistakes. Also, how we ought to seek the Lord and make sure that our plans are not getting in the way of what the Lord has planned for us. In verses 24 through 26, Jesus the cost of discipleship and the value that he places upon a human soul. And we noted how Christ was, was and still is looking for people that are willing to make a commitment to discipleship no matter what the cost. Also how the Lord's able to replace good things with better things when we fully surrender our lives to him. And we look at that great value the Lord has placed upon our souls. And there's nothing that we could gain outside of an eternal relationship with the Lord that would even come close to being profitable in exchange for our soul. And lastly here, verse 27, he revealed this future aspect of his ministry as the Messiah, the second coming. And we noted that, that when he comes at, at the second coming, that he's going to test our, our, our works and what we've done and, and how we ought to be building upon the foundation of Christ with our very best. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this morning and just uh, your word. Thank you for, uh, Lord, just looking and, and seeing. Lord, uh, you use guys like Peter who make mistakes. And I'm so thankful that you use guys like Peter and guys like me and guys like everyone here and, and ladies as well, you know, guys and gals. Lord, you, you, you don't use us because we're perfect. You use us in spite of our many flaws. And so, Father, we thank you for that. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that you've called us to a life of discipleship, not just to, to believe, uh, but, Lord, to invest in that relationship, to build upon that relationship. And so, Father, as we consider the cost of discipleship and, and the rewards that are going to come as we build upon that foundation, Lord, I pray that we'd be encouraged to surrender all to you and to give to you our very best. Lord, to honor you, Lord, as Romans encourages us, it is just a, a reasonable sacrifice, our, our lives, to live them as a living sacrifice. It's a, a reasonable thing that, uh, that we can do for you. And uh, so, Lord, I pray that you'd give us the strength 
the strength to live for you, the strength to honor you, and, and to live for you and to uh, be completely sold out for you. We pray this in Jesus' name.